Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, uh, strength coach. I run Strength Guild facility in Topeka, Kansas, and I'm also the president of the USSF and uh, Lift for Hope. And right here on Iron Radio, I'm also a powerlifter and Highland Games athlete. Sweet. Yeah, and joining us today, we had talked about this about a month ago, I think. I put it out on the Facebook group that we're going to, from time to time, have a listener join us. And we have listener Holly, uh, Holly Chapman, right? on with us today so everybody say hello to holly holly say hello to everybody hi from snowy montana (laughs) and uh we're gonna get back with holly after lonnie and i say a bit of news and then we're gonna have some fun right on strength and muscle sport news um a couple of things uh have come across my desk that i wanted to bring up one of them, uh, listeners, if you listen regularly, you know that we had uh, Dr. Antonio, uh, Joey Antonio, on, and he was talking about satellite cells. And satellite cells for the uninitiated are just baby, undifferentiated cells. They're a form of stem cell and muscle, and they can, over time, donate their little nuclei to the big muscle cells so you get more nucleuses, right, more nuclei in those muscle cells. And that's good news for making a big muscle. So... I stumbled once again upon a little bit from uh, Stu Phillips. He'll sometimes tweet some things. And um, there was a news bit, and I followed the news bit uh, further to, the, to an original paper. Uh, so let me cut to the chase. This is uh, December 2013. Uh, essentially, m- the fact that muscle memory is a real uh, phenomenon Uh, especially in people who have used anabolics. Listen to this. It says a cellular memory mechanism aids overload hypertrophy in muscle long after an episodic exposure to anabolic steroids. This is Egner and colleagues. And this is the same person who I believe um, is a high-level boxer, uh, and she's part of this research group. But previous strength training with or without the use of anabolic steroids facilitates the reacquisition of muscle mass long after periods of inactivity. They wanted to maximize their chance of finding this, and it says uh, they gave mice, I don't know why, but female mice, testosterone propionate for 14 days, and they induced a huge increase in the amount of nuclear material, a 66% increase in the number of myonuclei, a 77% bigger fiber cross-sectional area. Uh, And this is what's interesting. Three months later, the number of nuclei remained elevated. So to a mouse, that's more than 10% of its lifespan. We just extrapolate that to 10% of a human lifespan, you know, being, uh, you know, maybe eight years or something like that. But if you do, um, this is sort of remarkable. It also says when the nuclei-rich muscles were exposed to overload exercise for six days the cross-sectional area increased by 31%, while the control muscles that didn't get the juice earlier 
did not bounce back like that. Uh, so it says, we suggest a lasting elevated number of myonuclei really facilitates subsequent hypertrophy when you start to lift again. So again, they, they put these mice on the juice. Uh, they took them away from lifting um, and then m- much later put them back on the lifting and they just grew like little weeds. So um, what this suggests and what Stu Phillips, Dr. Phillips, was suggesting is lifetime bans for anabolic steroid users because once you've got all these nuclei in place, it's it could be an unfair advantage forever kind of thing. Now, I look at this from two aspects. Yes, I can see this from a doping perspective, but also if you really get really long-lasting nuclei addition, you know, more nuclei in your muscle cells, wouldn't it stand to reason then that if you wanted to combat something like age-related muscle wasting, you know, the sarcopenia of aging, maybe just like immunization or something like that, maybe young men should be put on a small dose of testosterone for a couple of weeks, maybe (laughs) twice when they're young, then, you know what I mean, then you have more nuclei in your muscles, you don't waste away as badly. You, know you just I mean? made the NSA list on that one, Lonnie. Oh, well, you know. They're all going to be coming after you. I'm just saying. Uh, it just, just like anything else, if you can inoculate someone so they don't have health problems later, you know what I mean? This could yeah. almost be used in that way, but that's not how it's being you know, put out there. So that might seem radical, but actually Dr. Antonio, who is the one talking about satellite cells and additional nuclei in your muscle cells and everything, um, I think in the past he's been a proponent of healthy young people actually being uh, put on short courses of testosterone, for example, because of uh, the health effects that you can get from that sort of thing. I know that's blasphemy, but yeah. it's interesting, though, that you can get the additional uh, nucleus donated in there, and it it lasts for a long time, I guess. So that was one. So I thought that was sort of interesting, uh, permanent changes in muscle memory. Because I think, let's face it, even if you have normal testosterone levels, this this is a new description of a mechanism for muscle memory. You know, the, the bro science, the gym science has always said, oh, you, you lift, you know, and it comes back fast. Why does yeah. it do that? Well, maybe because you're, you know, you have extra nucleuses in those little cells and they just, they're primed and ready to, you know, grow again. Um, the other thing quickly is... This is an article that I got from Jonathan Mike, and Mike Nelson's been talking about this. He's a friend of Iron Radio, of course, and this is from Forbes magazine. It's called Sweet and Sour. The media decided that fructose was bad for America, but science had second thoughts. Now, I read this piece, and I'm not going to go through this in detail. This is from Trevor Butterworth. He's a contributor to Forbes, I guess. But it talks about how for the last decade there's been, as he says, a specter has haunted the food chain, the specter of high fructose corn syrup. And as you read this article, it's almost a bit of an apologist piece for fructose. He was saying that the science, uh, the scientists don't really all agree that fructose is a problem, um, although he does cite some key papers, um, like especially one from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which I read often from 2004 but he makes it sound like it really goes back and forth and you know the American Medical Association isn't absolutely sure that fructose is bad and this and that and and yet some people continue to insist that fructose is different from sugar 
And he makes the usual arguments. Table sugar is half fructose. Yes, it is. Sucrose is half fructose, uh, half glucose. Uh, high fructose corn syrup is also almost half and half. It's only about 55% fructose, so it's not really that high in fructose. Um, but I can tell you, I have given medical education <laughs> to physicians on this topic, and fructose is problematic in many ways. It It's more glycating. It gums up the proteins in your body and your cells and whatnot. It's, it's lipogenic in many ways in that it bypasses some of the rate limiting steps in um, you know glucose metabolism and that sort of thing so uh, there are some real problems about this so if you see this uh, paper from Forbes or people talking about it I'm getting quite a bit of this uh, in my e- email inbox because of the usual group of nerds that I run with but I, I don't know he's he's almost making it sound like we don't we're not really sure and the media's kind of at fault for making this sound like it's controversial when Maybe it's not, and I don't know how well-trained this guy is in um, in science, other than maybe statistics or whatnot, but um, I don't know. I do like that he blames the media, I guess, uh, but I'm not sure I agree in the way that he's blaming the media. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, even the title of the article makes it sound like the science isn't really behind fructose being bad, and I would argue, yes, it is. Yes, indeed, it is. Fructose is a problem uh, in many ways. So, anyway, just I wanted to put that out there. Uh, that's something circulating in the ner- nerd circles, anyway, about you know fructose back in the news. But so um, other than that, we've got, of course, the uh, the Arnold is going on this weekend. You know, me and Lonnie had talked about going, but we're both uh, extremely busy. So, but you know, it should be another good time. You got a big expo there. I've been talking to a lot of people who are out there. Um, we'll see how the Highland Games goes. Is it snowing there, Lonnie? It's freaking crazy here. Oh, really? No, actually, we're bracing for a big storm. I guess. And so are we. That's uh, so we'll see because that's like they're doing an outdoor thing again, second year in a row for the Highland Games there. So it's going to be interesting having that. But they're doing some of the events inside. And then, of course, the uh, can't go without mentioning the uh, CrossFit Games, the CrossFit Open. Started well. They put out the work first workout last night. Um, I'm more interested this year than past years because I'm training some people for it. But um, yeah, the first workout isn't isn't too horrible, <laughs> in my opinion. But uh, so it's going to be neat to see how that plays out. Of course, I mean it's it, no matter what you think about CrossFit, it's uh, at the sport level, in my opinion, it's fun to watch. Um, because it is athletes doing, you know, athletic stuff. Um, so, um, other than that, I mean, in the news, that's all I got right now. Okay. You know, I wanted to say one thing about the Arnold. Uh, I don't know. It it has grown to such an extent. I'm Mm -hmm. not even sure people remember that the Arnold weekend, uh, was once the Arnold classic. It exists because of bodybuilding. Yeah. And I'm not sure, like some of my students that go over there, since it's only about a two and a half hour drive from here, I'm not sure they even realize that. You know, they mm. sort of snicker about bodybuilding and physique competitions and that sort of thing. And it's like, I don't know. I think um, a lot of what you take for granted exists because of bodybuilding. So yeah. you, you should uh, go look it up. <laughs> The lay person, in my opinion, I think the thing that they recognize is the frickin' expo. That's what everybody goes for. And the other stuff is kind of secondary. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's true. But that's probably because all the free stuff you get. 
So. No, I, I've heard that it's like 20 or $25 just to go do the expo, but I suppose... Just to get into the expo this year? I, no, I have to go look. At, I'd have to look it up, actually, but... Yeah. You would think that you get at least that much back in stuff like uh, free. Oh yeah, if you want. Like I remember the first first year that I did the Olympia. It was I bought an extra suitcase just to bring the crap home, and then after that, it was kind of like ah, nah, nah. This last time I went, I didn't bring anything home. Yeah, but I once had some students go check it out for the first time, and they they got freebies. And I'm I'm almost surprised some of these supplement booths handed out, but they handed out freebies of uh, you know, like DMAA and some of these yeah. extra stimulants and. Uh, and these students took the full dose and were like, "Oh my God, I thought I was gonna die <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah well don't don't take that stuff the people formulating that stuff you think they're nutritionists yeah no they're not or pharmacists oh yeah that's the thing I mean you can walk around those expos and all the samples they give out it's a mix of pre-workout drinks and like protein so you just woo you're jacked up all day long yeah but <laughs> and I'll tell you what yeah. too uh the whole expo thing, I mean, I've been to these booths where there's literally, like, booth babes in bikinis and, you know, yeah. like, dioderm and stuff and all this, and, yeah. and, and lab coats. You know, yeah. it's like, can you be one or the other? I mean, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not saying that you can't be a figure person and also a science person, but, you know what I mean? There's something very comical about yeah. people standing around in a bikini and a lab coat. Yeah. I mean, you know. I don't know. Maybe I went to school for too long. I could have just gone on a lab coat and <laughs> We'll go. Let's let's go on and talk to Holly now then. We're kind of done with the news. So, Holly, um, thanks again for joining us. I'll just give a brief bit about Holly. I know you're a – well, she's a mom, and she's done several figure competitions now or just one? I have done three. Done three figure competitions. So, you know, she's she has uh, – experience dealing with uh, amateur figure competitions while actually living a real life which uh could be uh, very interesting for some of the listeners and then uh just tell us about how did you get into the fitness stuff in general for the first time well part of it is you have to go way back and realize how old i am um when i was in fifth grade they introduced basketball as a competitive sport for girls that was the first year it was they had teams and you could play as a competitor um and i played in fifth grade so i'm 51 i'm going to be 52 this year i would say probably 10 years ago is when i started my fitness journey and it was because of something my kids were doing um they became competitive swimmers and they spent many hours at the swimming pool in town, and I'm about 20 miles out of town, so I needed something to do while they were swimming. And I signed up at a gym. And it was a Gold's gym. And I made a few advances and, you know, some strength gains, really small things now that you look back at it. And... I thought my body would radically change, mm-hmm. and it really didn't. And I didn't know all the things about lifting and diet that I know now. But I kind of plugged away at it intermittently over about a nine-year period with probably a couple years hiatus while we adopted a bunch of kids and my life went out of control. <laughs> and <laughs> um, when some of my kids started growing up and moving out of the house and I had 
a little bit more time, and I had also some pains and frustrations I wanted to deal with. Um, I think that's about the time CrossFit was really coming. Well, that's when it came to Montana. And so that was like five or six years ago. And just something about the ad about like dragging chains and flipping tires kind of, it it, it sounded fun. And so I kind of got into it through CrossFit about five or six years ago. And along the way, I got injured, took a little time off, and once again, because of my children, and now it was ballet, um, there was a brand new CrossFit that was two doors down from the ballet studio, and so that's where I spent my time, and that's where I became, it, it became evident to me, like, some of the things that were actually possible. And um, I realized just because of my age that there were not necessarily limitations to put on me. And I remember a long time ago in my the beginning of my CrossFit journey or partway through it, um, 180 pounds was my max deadlift. And it took everything in me to move that that number's gone up significantly since then. <laughs> so in the past 10 years, um, you've been lifting weights, and you haven't magically woke up too huge as a woman. No. That's what a lot no. of women are worried about, is like, I'll get big and bulky. So you just, you haven't automatically become big and bulky. Oh, I wish I could become <laughs> big and bulky. Um, <laughs> the only time I get bulky is when I eat too much. Yeah. Um. No, and I would have to say early on, I was lifting more, I guess what you might call girl weights, and my last five years have been spent, my max deadlift is 275. Uh, I've not trained my deadlift specifically, that's just been, oh, it happens to be deadlift day, and let's go for a PR, you know, and other days, we're going at 80% of your daily, you know, your one rep max for the day. So I have no problem repping out a number of deadlifts at 235 to 250 pounds on any given day. And following that up, you know, with pushing the prowler, which I love the prowler. It's like my favorite thing. And, you know, I can go into the gym any day and back squat, hit 200 pounds, um, 225 is my max. I consistently do reps at, you know, back squats at, at, I guess, what some people would consider to be high weight. Um, put put things in perspective for us a little bit. You're, how, how much do you weigh? You're, you're not a big person. Um, depending on how lean I am, I weigh anywhere from, well, if I compete during competition, I'm about 123 um, right now, I'm about 138. So that that puts 285 pound deadlift into a, a bit. Uh, it just put, puts the picture of it a, a bit higher. You know what I'm saying? It so, does. Yeah, yeah, it so does. It's more than two that, times body weight. Yeah. Yeah, and with my you know my body weight right now at 138, if I were to stay here right where I am the rest of my life, I can put on a bikini and and be proud of it. 
you know, not, not put on a bikini and get on stage. Yeah. But I can rock a bikini. So speaking and of getting on stage, when, uh, sorry to interrupt you, I'm just, uh, what led to getting into figure? Well, actually it was one of my CrossFit friends. Um, she had competed and I saw her absolutely mentally fall apart <laughs> in her last competition. And she would obsess over things that I found kind of bizarre to obsess about. Um, She was also single, so she had probably more time to obsess than somebody who is married and has a bunch of children. (laughs) And I actually went to a competition with her and, and helped her, you know, prep backstage and stuff. And I thought it was mildly interesting. Um, but then I heard she was going to compete again, and I thought, oh, I don't know how I can deal with her mental state. And then I thought, well, why don't you just try it and see what it's like? So when I found out about the competition, I was ten and a half weeks out, and I did not use a coach. Um, I was working out at a CrossFit where we had what was called a heavy program, and I had taken... Um, an only lifting course, Phil, from you and Charles Daly. So three days a week, I did the heavy program, which was all centered around only lifting. And three to four days a week, I did a traditional CrossFit workout. Our, our workouts tended to be a lot of body weight stuff and very what I would call cardio-ish and kind of along the long side for for CrossFit, like 30 to 40-minute workouts that were just like a mental grind to get through. And that was how I prepped for my first competition. So, Holly, let me Um, ask then. Ten weeks isn't very long. What did you do? I know. As someone, you know, getting used to this or getting your feet wet, what did you do with your diet? What was your approach to your diet then? Um, well, I just decided I knew that protein was important, but that I wanted to eat at least a gram a day in body weight of protein um, because I was so much around the CrossFit uh, thing, which seems to take things to extreme. I felt like I needed to be pretty low carb. That doesn't, I was not ketogenic. I kept my calories. Um, I knew I didn't really want to drop below 1,200. And I felt like I didn't want to go above 1500 So I kind of shot for that. And I didn't sit down every day and plan, you know, that I was going to eat 11 almonds at 2 p.m. <laughs> um, right. I basically knew I needed to kind of divvy up my protein equally throughout the day. I didn't feel obsessed about eating five or six meals a day. I just ate at least three main meals a day. And then I also guess I ate around my training too. So I tended to do most of my training at four or five in the afternoon, my lifting. So I would have like a pre-workout protein and a post-workout protein. So maybe those were kind of like my extra meals. And I would kind of log my calories at the end of the day. I use something like fitday.com. And if I was too low, I would go over to the refrigerator and eat a spoonful of peanut butter or fish oil. 
you kind of you, you saw somebody else that was stressed out about it. You're like, eh, I'm going to give it a shot, walk in their shoes. But you didn't. You kind of went in it to have fun, is what it sounds like. Oh, I want. I wanted to have fun. I had no clue. I just had the littlest clue what I was getting into, and my goal was just to walk on stage. Yeah. I didn't have any kind of. Um, I didn't think about placing or or anything like that. I just wanted to put the bikini on and walk and walk on stage and, yeah. and I also decided I was going to wait and pay my registration fees the last at the last minute because I was going to do what I thought was right and possible without being extreme mm-hmm. and if I wasn't ready I wouldn't go on stage but if I was what I felt was close enough to ready I would and to my surprise I placed <laughs> um, I play. They, you know, they do the placing or give trophies or whatever to fifth place, and I placed fifth in the masters, and I only entered the masters category, and I thought that was pretty exciting. So then, how has it progressed from there? Have you changed in what you're doing, um, or you still don't stress about it? Um. Well, I can tell you what's what, what's kind of happened. My second competition, so that my first competition was in 2010. Um, my second competition I did in 2011, and um, I actually placed in that. When I went to register the night before the competition or at check-in, um, they convinced me to also pay the extra registration fee and compete in the open class. And so instead of just competing against people that were 35 and older, I was competing against the younger competitors also by height class. And um, I placed in that. I placed fourth in the open, and I placed third in the masters. Um, And I had continued to train the same way I uh, was still doing the heavy only lifting three days a week and doing the CrossFit type workouts three to four times a week which I kind of counted those as some of my cardio and I threw in a little bit of extra kind of hit training in the mornings because I have a treadmill at home or I live in the mountains and I can run intervals on the hills or something like that. Um, my food didn't really change, um, but it was my third competition that uh, I really struggled with because I don't know why. I think I kind of hit that. I, I felt like I had um, milestones that I that I needed to hit in mm. order to, quote, be successful. And... Um, there were some things I had changed gyms, and that was stressful. And my heart could not get into the contest prep. It just, I, I started to prepare for a competition, and, um, and I decided that it just wasn't going to happen. And I did that a second time. And then um, I did it a third time, and I thought, if you don't compete right now, you're never going to do it. Yeah. And it was just, it was, I, I worked with a coach online um, 
I had was an, I was excited about working with him because he coached his wife also, and she was an older competitor. And the problem was, I think, is that he gave me a cookie-cutter diet. And so I changed my diet, which I'm open to. To me, it's like working with a piece of wood and trying something new every time is kind of fun until you find something that's like, oh, wow. And um, super high protein, super low fat. My body didn't like it. He wanted me to do an hour of steady state cardio a day. And that became a, um, a mental block for me. And I would just procrastinate all morning on doing this cardio and kick myself all morning thinking like, oh, you're just a failure because you just won't get on your treadmill and do it. And, um, but I finally, I made it to the contest. Um, it was my first out-of-state contest. Um, I placed in the open. Um, I think I placed third. Um, the master's category for that competition was huge. I placed seventh in it, and only I only think I did so well in the open is because for some reason most of those master's women didn't compete in the open. Um, but it was just such a struggle. And later on, um, I have a, my family has a history of thyroid, um, low thyroid, mm-hmm. and I've had my thyroid checked over and over again. I'm the only one in my family that's never been on thyroid medication. And lo and behold, um, my thyroid was low. And I don't think it's been exacerbated by competing. Um, I just think it finally showed up. And I think that greatly contributed to my, um, just my, my mental yeah. outlook in that third prep. And just, I just felt, I felt tired and worn out constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, but my training had changed also too. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting ready to compete in May. Um, I'm super excited. I feel like I have a lot of energy and, um, this time around my diet has lots of carbs in it. (laughs) Do it a bit different than last time. Nice. Um, let's short break. And then when we come back, we're going to let you take the chair of the question asker. And we'll take the the opposite end and uh, see what we can uh, let out there for everybody. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development on the right side of the page. You can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for sixty nine U.S. dollars. So that's thirty one percent off the ninety nine ninety five uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. Sixty nine dollars. I think that's gonna 
drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people, and you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals, so you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes – we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we're back. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we're with Holly. And before we get to some uh, question and answer session here, um, this is episode 250. That's a, that's a long time. It is. Um, so we want to do a contest. And what I want to do is find out what listeners uh, would like in order to enter this contest. I all My only thought here is that it should be 250 related. So, for example... Um, maybe guys, how many times can you bench 250? Maybe the guy who benches the most, you know, will put in a drawing for a gift or for women. Uh, if you can squat 250, uh, maybe that's something, or, uh, we are joking a little bit over the break, but even if it's eating 250 grams of protein a day for a week, you know, if you've struggled not eating enough, maybe that's something you want to do. But I think what we'll do is we'll throw this out on our Facebook page and, again, crowdsource it, and we'll let people tell us what they might want to do. So if you think of something 250-themed, 250, then, um, you know, let us know. Make a little post, and we'll create a contest out of it and uh, give away some goodies. Sounds good. So, Holly, let us have it. What do you got for us? Okay, well, Phil, you have said or maybe messaged me a couple of things that have greatly, really influenced my thinking okay. and, and my planning. And one of the first things that comes to my mind is um, when I, was, I had messaged you about figure competitions, you had told me a flawed plan followed will bring you results better than the perfect plan that you don't follow. And, oh, I think about that almost every day. Um, but in any case, that leads me to think about uh, nutrient timing. Um, and there's probably not 
I, I just was wondering about your thoughts on nutrient timing um, and kind of contrasting, is there a difference? Assuming you're doing everything else right and you're consuming your proper macros for bulking versus leaning, um, is the nutrient timing any different if you're trying to build strength versus if you're trying to get lean? Hmm. Jeez. Um, uh, maybe. I mean, I'll go first and let Lonnie take over because he's more the nutrition guy. In my opinion, not really. I changed it a bit, and that's for for the individual. Um, still, for me, it's I focus more around well, you know, the peri workout instead of just post workout. I I'm right. a firm believer in that pre and during is more important than post. For the fact that I know, you know, even if I'm doing four or five sessions, let's say I'm doing four sessions a week, there's usually going to be 24 hours before the next session. That's plenty of time for me. Even if I'm alone, low carb, I'm going to get some carbs in at each meal. Um, so, you know, I, I focus more on the, the pre-workout and getting, you know, even if I have somebody on a, on a low carb diet, we have some carbs before we work out. We're going to burn through those, use them as energy and get rid of that and same thing so that goes both ways for somebody who's who's looking to get bigger um or somebody that's looking to get lean that's kind of my variable that stays the same other than that um you know it 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 would change just in the amount of calories you know if somebody's looking to get bigger it depends on how at what level they're at with somebody like me it's just a matter of i need to eat all the time if i'm hungry at all i'm not eating enough um, whereas I, you know, I might have some lifters that are, um, you know, newer, um, you know, and they don't quite need to go that far, um, to put on 15, 20 pounds, whatever we're looking to put on. But, um, so just timing wise, no, I think my only variable is, would be, would be that it'd be getting carbs in before the workout. Um, and Looking to add strength, it's more of a mixed meal all the time, whereas looking to lean out, we'd probably be controlling our carbohydrate intake at, at various parts of the day more. I, I lean towards kind of what uh, Lonnie's thinking. Um, if I'm having carbs during the day, it's going to be more towards the morning or pre-slash-during workout and not so much at night. Um, and then, you know, if we're putting on weight, I'm just having them all day long. So, Lonnie, I don't know. What do you think? You know, you're saying all day long. Uh, I think it's an important point to realize that if you're training four days a week or more, you're always in a post-workout mm, yeah. window. Like Duncan McDougall did a lot of that original research where he said, uh, you know, the protein synthesis gets kicked up after a workout for about 24 to 36 hours. Well, I'm going to be lifting again by, you know, by that time. So you're always doing it. I think we focus so much on like the two hours post-workout sort of thing. And a lot of that work was legitimately done by early researchers like uh, Mike Sherman, uh, I don't know, John Ivey, even Kevin Yerushevsky from my lab when I was in grad school. Um, So there are some truth to that. But like you said, Phil, I mean, the glycogen's going to come back over about a 24-hour period. A lot of that stuff with immediate glycogen resynthesis and eating the carbs immediately after, um, a lot of the focus on that is to try to get the glycogen back up as fast as possible mm-hmm. if you've got like two a days, you know, or you've got yeah. something uh, coming at you very quickly. Uh, 
So I, I don't know. I think first you're always in that kind of a post-workout window on some level, either protein synthesis or glycogen resynthesis. Um, yeah, but I am a fan actually of – I like the pre-breakfast old-school bodybuilding approach to um, you know walking uphill uh, in a more or less fasted state with some black coffee in your belly maybe. Um, that's not the only thing that I would be doing, but that serves multiple purposes. And I've written uh, articles uh, you can find online, temporal nutrition, 100 workouts. There's more than one way to skin a cat. But one way that I know works, and I've, I've gotten down to about 4% body fat myself doing this, is that um, you know, 45, 60 minutes before breakfast uphill – uh, then I'll have my oatmeal. I'll have my carbs in the morning, some kind of slow-acting carbs. And that's it's true for a couple of things. I mean, it's helpful for a couple of ways. One is you don't ruin yourself for the weights later. You know, you just walked uphill. I mean, you know, it's not that hard. Um, two, you don't cross certain stress hormone thresholds. So you don't start kicking up your cortisol and a lot of overtraining risk kind of things unnecessarily. Um so it almost becomes, instead of a calorie balance argument, there's been an interesting argument made in the scientific literature for fat balance. And if you burn more fat directly while you're on the treadmill in a fasted state, you know, uh, like you said, Phil, there'd be times of the day where you might actually go for more carbs and more insulin uh-huh. and other times where you want them lower. Um, and like I said, that's one way. There's a lot of high-intensity interval stuff, and I would do that myself, uh, actually, in addition to what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Um, but one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is it's a, it's a fair amount of effort. I mean, uh, two-a-days uh, in one form or another, they're more common than you might think for people that are trying to get their body fat really, really low for a competition. But again, people are different. And uh, Holly, when you mentioned getting a cookie-cutter diet, that sort of makes me cringe. You know, because when you go to a doctor, yeah. what is the first thing that happens? They do some type of assessment. You know, they want to f- see what you are or what you're like, what are you, the signs and symptoms and what's your uh, situation. They don't just look at you and say, here's some antibiotic or here's uh-huh. some high blood pressure medicine. They measure something first. And I think that's where a lot of diet coaches and gurus, they sort of go wrong. They're like, well, this works for me or this works for uh-huh. You know, my handful of people, so it will work for you. And that might not be true. People have different genes, different lifestyles, different, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah, I agree. And it's the same thing in coaching. But yeah, I was going to mention that too. I mean, uh, you know, when she talked about the cookie cutter diet, it's, I mean, I notice it here all the time. We'll see, like, my wife has a certain way of eating that's just been working great for her. And so we tried it on a couple of our people. And, not so great, you know, and it's it's very individual, and it's figuring out that for for the individual, and it, it's a bad thing when a when a person just uh, does that with a training plan or a nutrition plan. It's like, oh, here it worked for me; it has to work for you, and then it's almost like the coach will get upset if it's not working for you, and it's, well, it must be your fault; you must not do not, not be doing it right, um, type of thing. But it's also interesting to note that you the, the walking in the morning thing. I know that way back many moons ago, about sixty five pounds ago. Uh, when I was a smaller Phil, uh, I talked to you and I started doing the the walking instead of running in the morning, and I actually got leaner and and my training got better from from toning down my morning training a bit. Um, this was when I was actually more uh, interested in being lean than 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 big because of what I was doing in in, in the industry. But uh, no, I'm a big fan of that too. Early morning stuff, and I'll have my people come in and 
uh, some of my ones that are that are looking to to lose some pounds, and it'll be something as simple as we'll hook a sled up to them, and they got to go walk for twenty minutes, um, type of thing. Okay, what's next? Well, what do we got next? Well, I was um, I was thinking about another Phil comment one time too about uh, training for figure how how you need a big butt, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> I love that because all of a sudden it made me start to love my body, <laughs> and no, really, it, it did, and um, that was like a, a really significant thing, and um, so big butts kind of makes me think about um, training. Spot training. My my glute hamstring area has been my weak area, and I'm sorry. No matter how many squats I've done, and no matter how much I deadlift, um, I, I haven't made the improvements that I wanted to make. And so now I've been looking into adding. Um, I've been doing some some different things like hip thrusters and hip bridges and more lunges and things like that and, and I did not mean to use the faux pas and, and say that I believe in spot training at all but I just, I kind of was wondering if Lonnie or, or, or you could explain like when you're training a specific area um, does it pull energy from like, is it possible that it ever pulls energy from fat deposited in that area or does it come question. out of your bloodstream um, you know Seen, Is there any science behind that? Have you seen the article? Last week uh, on T Nation, Chris Shugart was mentioning an old piece that I did uh, called uh, Is Spot Reduction Real or something like that. So, And the quick disclaimer is in, in a guy with a giant beer belly, no, doing sit-ups is not getting rid of his yeah. giant beer belly. But I think most of us know that. You know, I mean, that's what systemic cardio is for. Um but there is some truth, believe it or not, to um, – they've done a technique called microdialysis where they put tiny tubes just under your skin in the fatty area, and you can actually see some of the breakdown products of fat in there uh, that you don't see on the opposite side of the body where you're not getting the direct effect. I used to think about Corey Everson, who was Miss Olympia for many years, for listeners who don't know. And she used to say, I don't know if spot reduction is real, but I know that fat hates activity. You know, and so I like to do localized stuff in addition to the cardio. So um, there is a little bit of truth to that. I was uh, exploring some data from the literature about, like, a tennis player, how you know their uh, racket arm tends to be a little bit different in composition than their non-racket arm, and you know, just some little observations like that. So I don't think it's going to be super dramatic, but I think once you're a physique competitor like you are. Um, there is some advantage, probably. That's know. what I was going to say. It's kind of like the, the supplement thing. It's it's going to be that 1% more type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And for the average person, it's not going to do a thing. You know, if I have the average person off the street that just wants to get in okay shape, then no. Um, you know, doing the thigh master and, uh, right. you know, some crunches yeah. isn't going to cut the mustard. That's where we – and that's, that's the general population. That's the mass majority of people. So – and that's where it kind of like – things like my spot reduction fallacy article and things like that came from. Um, but I, I forget the guest we had on that not too long ago, and we, we talked about spot reduction a bit and how some of the new science was saying, yeah, because of the, um, you know, you get blood flow there and this and that. And right. if you just look at the human body, I'm, you know, generally all of us store fat centrally. 
even if it's hips, if it's belly, if it's whatnot, you look at the extremities, the parts that move more, and they're usually a lot leaner. Um, you know, so that kind of tells you something there. But um, yeah, blood flow. Yeah, and I think. Yeah, those are big points because normally fatty areas, like on your obliques, they're notoriously poor blood flow. And when yeah. you put your hand there, when you're doing your cardio, it's like icy cold. Well, how do you have nice hot 37 degree blood flushing through there? Yeah. If it's that cold, you probably don't. So open up the vascular beds. And I actually used to do that when I used to get on the treadmill. I'd actually put a, a lifting belt on backwards and just try to keep the area warm. I'm not delusional. I mean, I know a lot of people have done that with fatty belts and trying to dehydrate the area and all this silliness. But yeah. that's not what I mean. I just mean I'm trying to keep the blood flow. So that's a very good point, Phil. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, the, the take-home point is... Yeah, but it's going to be a small percentage. But, you know, for somebody like you looking to get stage-ready shape, yeah, it's probably going to help. Okay. Well, and, uh, Phil, I have another question that might be more directed towards you as far as the Oli lifting. Okay. Um, I have a really hard time keeping the bar close to my body. Okay. Um, and, you know, with, with my deadlift and with my back squat, and I even have a really good front squat, I'd be able to clean a lot more than I'm cleaning. And part of that is a silly um, fear of the bar, mm-hmm. um, which I which I battle. But part of it is, is I've just, uh, maybe I've developed a, a, a poor, uh, poor motor pattern, uh, muscle memory, uh, from back when I did a lot of CrossFit mm-hmm. and keeping it light and fast. Yeah. Um, are there some good drills that you can do to um, help help in that area? Yeah, I mean, with the Olympic lifts, that's the neat thing about them. I mean, the, 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 the hard thing about them is there's so many parts to the lift. The neat thing about them is because there are so many parts, there's a ton of drills we can do. Um, it could be, without seeing what's going on, it, it could be numerous things. Um, you know, it could be you're shooting your hips, which is causing the bar to be out in front too much you know your shoulders are way over um we want the shoulders over and we want the lats to have to be engaged to keep the bar close but you might be shooting your hips right off the bat which is going to lead to distance at the knee and at the hip um which will then likely lead to if you're actually finishing the pole getting your hips through you're going to bang the bar which is going to lead to distance so um the bar shouldn't be dragging up you but it should be very very close to us um the whole time um so if there's too much distance from from us on the through the first pole and the second pole then it's going to lead to you know either that distance stays there or it slams back into us which then creates false distance so anyways yeah i mean i would i would look at um break the lift down into parts and just make sure the bar always stays close so you know the first thing i'd probably have you do is is liftoffs so the move from the floor to the top of the knee um, uh-huh. and just get really used to that and staying close and make sure you set your back angle, um, you know, meaning the angle that our butt and our hips create, and that never changes. That angle never never changes from floor to the top of the knee, um, and we, we maintain that angle. I don't want to see your hips shoot up, and, uh, and I also don't want to see your, your, your shoulders shoot up. So, But the most usual one is hip shooting up um, to where the, our hips are – high in comparison to our shoulders um so all we're doing is pushing our knees back so it's practicing that that's one you go really slow on you can actually see it'll help your lifts it's it's a lot harder than one would think if you're doing it nice and slow um and you'll come up and pause for you know two seconds at the knee and then back down 
Um, and then from there, we would do the other part of the lift and come up and do do hang pulls from the hang. So uh, starting in, in a fully erect position and then sliding the bar down your legs to the top of the knee where we ended the last lift and then pulling up um, and not going overhead but just doing pulls um, and keeping the bar close the whole time. Um, and then the only way to get past like the mind thing is just practice. It's just reps and you just got to know that this thing isn't going to hurt me. Um, <clears throat> so those would be the two things we I'd start out with is those and just, uh, probably the first thing would be looking up some videos so we can see what's going on, but likely it's one of those things. It's, it's probably usually when a lift is messed up, it's from the beginning. It's that the okay. lift off got messed up. So my guess would be there's something wrong in the setup initially or the lift off itself that's throwing you off and leaving that bar way out in front. <laughs> It could also be that you're not finishing the pull. That's the other thing it could be. If you don't finish the pull and you're trying to squat under the bar, is it, it's not going to pull back. Um, that's another thing in Olympic lifting. It's you know a, a close friend of mine who's a great Olympic lifting coach. Kind of uh, back is the new up is what he likes to say. Meaning in Olympic lifting, we're not throwing the bar up. We need to throw it back behind it. You know, back towards us. Um, so that bar's not leaving. We're not looking to leave the bar out in front, especially on the snatch. If you watch good snatch. Uh, lifters, um, Olympic weightlifters, so I'm talking Olympic level, and if you look at the finish of their snatch, they are over-exaggerated way back because um, they're needing to throw that bar back behind them. So it might be you know, that you're not, you're not getting full extension, which could leave the bar out in front. If you're, if you're so worried about squatting down that you're not actually finishing, then that can leave the bar inches out in front of you, which uh, has you jumping after the bar. You'll notice when that happens, usually people are jumping forward three or four inches uh, to receive the bar. So, Okay. Is there time for another question? Yeah. Let's do it. Well, well, Lonnie, um, when, if, if you were getting ready to compete in um, something aesthetic, um, would you train, change your training a whole lot? I, I hear things, uh, go ahead and keep it heavy. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger learned that the hard way, you know, and um, so go ahead and keep it heavy. And then I have people that are telling me, oh, no, 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 you need to be, you need to keep it light and you need to do, you know, five sets of 20 on your back squats and um, that kind of thing. Or do you do a mix of things? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, first of all... (laughs) Actually, Holly, I'm I'm just impressed that you're you're interested in both. You know, you're a physique competitor that is happy about her deadlift. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's the old school thing that we've championed here since the beginning. You yeah. know, and I mean, you should be able to have the best of both worlds. I think the best powerlifters probably utilize some hypertrophy and bodybuilding training, and the best bodybuilders probably do some power stuff. You know, um, my right. personal approach. Uh, has always been now I tend to be ectomorphic I mean I'm not I'm not a bull neck kind of dude you know so I would have to keep things fairly heavy because I was afraid I would lose muscle mass maybe that was partly psychological um, but I would do my heavy sets uh, but I also think yeah there's a time uh, where someone is so power oriented that all they're ever doing is you know triples um, yeah, maybe a burnout set or something along that line or a couple of different kinds of movements. Um, because like when Joey Antonio was on, he was talking about one of the reasons you do different exercise 
directions and angles and movements is you can literally slightly at least change the shape of a muscle because you're activating satellite cells in different ways and that sort of thing i know it's very arguable whether or not you can dramatically change the shape of a muscle but i think you probably can a little um so my formulation with that has always been to keep it heavy i mean the last time i competed I i squatted 405 which is that's a heavy load for me uh for a handful of reps just two weeks before it's not like I dropped to two and a quarter, you know, or less and was trying to tone. I think a lot of people do make that mistake. I, I don't like the word tone. You know, you're either adding yeah. muscle mass or you're losing fat mass. That's what the human body does. Um, I know why people say tone. It's a cosmetic kind of thing, just like there's nuances in all these words, right? Does ripped mean the same thing as muscular, mean the same thing as toned? And the more you're in the game, the more you see there's nuanced differences there, but... One thing I, like I, I want to jump in here too. Um, I don't know what you think, Phil? But I've always said keep it as heavy as you can. You know, especially because you're in a calorie deprived state. I mean, yes. You know, and that's that's what I was going to get. At. I mean, the thing that I, I think a lot of people take that too far, and I, I know what you're you're talking about, Holly. I've heard it tons of times from, especially like figure competitors and stuff. That oh, it's my it's my pumping time. It's my toning time. I need to do five sets of thirty or forty. And you know, the problem I have with it is that, um. Number one, uh, if, if, if a ton of reps got you jacked, the biggest people in the world carrying the most muscle mass would be marathon runners. Um, <laughs> and that's just not happening. And the other thing is that volume, uh, you're, you're in this calorie-depleted state, which is the wrong time in my mind to have a ton of, ton of volume, especially hard volume, yep. because you, you don't have the caloric intake to, to repair it right then. Um, and that's why, and my other, the other point I want to get across is that, you know, so there's nothing that tells your body that it needs muscle more than heavy load or a very hard task. So, you know, if I'm consistently, I'm not saying going for 100% loads, but if all I'm doing is working around 40 or 50% and sitting sets of 40 and 30, um, that, that's not going to tell my body, hey, I need to keep this muscle. It's going to tell my body, hey, I need to get good at being more endurance oriented whereas if i'm hitting some hard fives and threes and and eights and you know consistently my body's gonna say damn phil uh, he's dieting but look his life he's consistently doing this i need to be strong still because that's a daily part of my life um so i think you got to keep it heavy some and then i think some back offsets and things like that yeah it'd be great but i mean i wouldn't get away from from at least moderately heavy hitting some 80 percent loads here and there Okay, that's that's a that's a really doable thing, even when you're in a calorie deficit. At least, at least my body works that way. I wouldn't plan on going for a PR or anything a week no. out. <laughs> you know, similar to that, Phil. You know. I think you got to be careful not to hurt yourself either. You know, to do when, what? Once you get so. really, really lean, I think the risk might be that you would. Yeah, you get could hurt. Actually, get hurt. Yeah, yeah. But, but if you're exactly, over, be you smart about it. But I mean, and you can. Everybody knows, even day to day, go to something that's pretty hard for that day. You know, especially if you're if you're cutting down for a competition, um, because it's not your hundred percent that day isn't your usual hundred percent. So you know, get up to that threshold that you know, hey, yeah, that's pretty heavy. I'm working hard. That that set of five was pretty damn hard. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it sounds it sounds almost um, petty, but it's fun when you're that lean. To do some more reps and go for a pump. Have fun and just get a pump. Yeah. 
you know. So. so. Yeah, we'll do something harder than Jim, too. Uh, I think that was one of the things that I can take away from my early years 10 years ago is um, if, if you don't look like you worked out a little bit, then maybe you didn't work out hard <laughs> enough. I, I see an awful lot of real pretty girls leaving the gym. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe they're just real pretty to me because they're so much younger. <laughs> but, no, I, um, what you're I make a lot of faces, and now I realize, yeah. you know, with all the joking around, I, um, I probably make some noises sometimes, too, now. Oh, yeah. Well, if, if you're leaving the gym and the only thing sore on you is your thumbs from texting, there's a problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, it was a good show. Holly, thanks for joining us. Yes, it, was, it was a lot of fun. No, thank you. Yeah, I good. think listeners will enjoy it. So, and good luck on your competition coming up. So, are you are you already dieting down now or getting ready to? Yep, I'm in. I'm in a calorie deficit. Yeah, my my go. my training's train uh, has changed up in that I am doing more what I would call traditional lifting five days a week, and uh, I'm doing basically one uh, kind of crossfitty uh, session on Saturdays, which are body weight, bring a friend. Long grind, the fun way to get some cardio done day, keep my connections, and um, I've spent the last year and a half putting on muscle, um, so I'm excited to strip some of this away and see what I have. Nice. Oh, yeah. Well, keep it fun this time. Don't dread it. So. I'm, yep, it's going to be fun. Good. Until next week, everybody. <clears throat> Hey, sports nutrition fans, join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.